0: Uh, So tonight, I want to talk about um, kind of moving us towards advanced healing and deliverance cases. And uh, Yuri said to me, more of the same of last year. That was his instruction. It was very specific. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I came prepared to talk about uh, things that are thematically like that. Anyway, so deliverance is a growing area. And a lot of people don't understand it very well, and it, it has historically been kind of a spooky subject, no pun intended. And so people tend to get kind of weirded out by it, and you know, pastors don't like it when the parishioners are unhappy. And so it's, it, there's been a long period of it being denied and kicked down the road back in the 1980s when John Wimber began to speak on deliverance. Uh, his own board came to him and said, and not the church board, the international ministry board, they came to him and they said, John, you've got to stop talking about this. You're going to alienate your core constituency of the evangelicals. And uh, so he kind of dialed it back. And you can understand why you would not want to alienate people. But on the other hand, truth is truth. And if deliverance is essential to seeing people come to the place that that Jesus meant for them to be in, well, then you, surely you would want to do this. But it's not always that way. And so deliverance is an area where, even though it's becoming more popular, I said in my Facebook group about a decade ago, there's a wave of deliverance coming to the church. And the wave is now here. And the reason that it's here is because There's a whole host of things that cannot get solved without deliverance. They simply can't be solved. No one likes hearing that because they think, well, why can't I just pray for healing? Or why can't I just do more inner healing? And I believe in those things, and we do those things too. But as I like to say, when deliverance is what you need, nothing else will do. Not more praying, not taking communion, not memorizing scripture, not going to another you know, round of whatever version of inner healing you like, whether it's a manual prayer or sozo or RTF or something, none of that is going to substitute for deliverance. And yet we don't want deliverance to become our one-trick pony. And so we are kind of on this balance point, and, and staying there is sometimes difficult. Um, we also have a lot of issues around deliverance intellectually. There's... There's a whole host of people who would tell you that anyone who believes in this stuff is, I don't know, living in another era, usually the Middle Ages or earlier than that. And so there's a dismissiveness about it in much of the, much of the world. Um, I went to Princeton University, which, trust me, is not a place where you're generally going to learn about deliverance. Um <laughs> But there was a guy in a class 10 years ahead of me who is a, a psychiatrist, and he's been writing a few articles here and there, not a lot of them, but they show up in places like the Atlantic and the New York Times, which are, you know, kind of organs of the of, uh, modern culture, we might call the mainstream media. And uh, he's been talking about in his psychiatric practice, uh, he is increasingly running into this, and he's just had to come to terms with it. And so, um, as I said, you don't really learn a lot about deliverance when you're in a place like uh, Princeton, but after college, I uh, went to California, and as Yuri was describing, by the way, went home to California, I'm a native of California, and I began working with John Wimber at uh, what we then called VMI, Vineyard Ministries International, and um, and then after that, I had a career in business where <laughs> sometimes I would have to cast demons out of people at work. And let me tell you, that's tricky. <laughs> Especially when you're in management because one of the big things people worry about is so-called asymmetry of power. And so if you're doing this to people, you know, what did you do to force them to go along with this, etc.? So anyway, I've had a lot of experience with this area in uh, interesting places. And, uh, and I tell you, where I went to school, mainly, not to brag, but, but that you'd understand that it's not true that only uneducated people believe in deliverance. Uh, I've got a guy who's 10 classes ahead of me who's a psychiatrist. He believes in it. Um, I've got people on my teams who are, well, I've got one with me. I won't point him out, but I've got one with me who's a medical doctor. Um, and is actually a university professor at a very well-known university in this part of the country. Um, I've got another one who works with me in my organization. He actually left a m- more than a million-dollar-a-year business as a surgeon to plant churches and uh, cast demons out of people and see them get healed. And I, I tried to dissuade him from doing that. I said, you'll have more credibility if you remain... A surgeon, than if you step away from it. But he said, no, this is what God's calling me to do. I said, well, then let God be true and every man a liar. And so that's what he's doing. Uh, His wife is a psychiatrist also. Both of those two, by the way, are Harvard educated. So it's not true that uh, deliverance is only for people who are somehow easily persuaded or dissuaded. And um, my own journey into deliverance uh, came about really when I was still in college and I was reading certain books, a couple of them I'll mention later on in this talk, but I was reading certain books and one of them among the many was this one right here in my hands, not this particular copy of it, but this book. And I remember distinctly around about my sophomore and junior year starting to pray, Lord, why is it that I see all this deliverance in the Bible and I don't see anybody getting delivered? And, and not only that, the healings, and I was starting to see the linkage of healing and deliverance, but I didn't necessarily fully connect with it at that point. I did later. Um, but I, I was asking a lot of questions like that, and I was praying about this a lot. Um, so, you know, when you're in college, you have a lot of time on your hands. You're supposed to be busy studying, but everybody knows that you do other things. But I was using that extra time that when I could have been out partying to go down to the local church and pray, and ask the Lord about healing and deliverance. And I I spent, as I say, many, many hours doing this. And uh, anyway, through a series of divine appointments, the Lord led me to John Wimber, where I began learning in earnest about how these things work. And I got my Master of Divinity, and so I got credentialed and somehow, I guess, earned some credibility somewhere, although I've lost it along the way. And I started to see things happen that would bring breakthrough to people. And, uh, and then others kind of came alongside. It's, you know When you go in a direction, I think it was Henry David Thoreau that said, if you will advance confidently in the direction of your dreams, you will meet with something like uh, opportunity unexpected at times that are perplexing or something pretty close to that. And so I was trying to chase down this thing that was on my mind. I didn't really know it was the Lord. And John always used to say to me, you never want to be known as a deliverance minister. Run away from being called that. Well, that's the one thing I get asked to speak on more than anything. (laughs) And I'm still trying to run away from it. So (laughs) I don't think it's working, but anyhow. Um, So I began researching these things and uh, learning about them. And... uh, And the story grows with the telling. But as I said, I started to see things happen sometimes around me. I'd walk into grocery stores and, you know, people would come up to me and they'd look at me and they'd say, we don't like you, leave. (laughs) Something I said or forget the deodorant, you know, it's like, what's that? I didn't really know what it was. I was talking to one friend. She used to go to work through a park in San Francisco, get off the train and, head toward her office, and there was a whole park full of homeless people, and whenever she would get near the park, not in it, near it, the whole park would explode with people screaming and shrieking. She said, what was that? I said, those were all the demons and all those people reacting to you. And then, um, you know, we had some, some early wins. We had some losses, of course. You don't win everything. And then things started to happen in the workplace, And so, anyway, all of that is uh, background, but starting way back in college, which is a long time ago, in a a millennium far, far away, uh, I became interested in the gamut of religious experiences that people have. Now, to be clear, I don't think all religious experiences are equally valid. I think some of them are counterfeit and should be discarded, but nevertheless, I, I just became interested in this area of religious phenomena and um, maybe more broadly, the kinds of experiences that people have, uh, both internally as well as externally. And so as I'm going through the process there at an Ivy League university, I found my faith challenged repeatedly in the marketplace of ideas that the world was and has become more so. And so one of the other things I want to suggest to you is that deliverance is important today because the, the nature of problems that people are having are very complex and many of them are demonic and they will not get out of them without it and so if you think you're going to make an impact on a community call it Apple Creek if you want to um, you better be ready to minister in deliverance because a, a high percentage of the problems are not just organic or chemical and if you don't have eyes to see and ears to hear then a lot of things are going to get by you so In all of that, I became very interested in the demonic. I don't know how I ever got interested in that, but I was. And so along the way, I had two books that really shifted my thinking dramatically. Neither one is written uh, by a Christian, and perhaps they would not be to to your liking, but nevertheless, these books were very meaningful to me. One was called Varieties of Religious Experiences by a man named William James, the book's about a hundred years old, uh, but the title kind of tells you what it's about, the different kinds of things that can happen to people religiously. And then in my junior uh, seminar, I had to read a book by a, a sociologist from the University of Chicago named Mircea Eliada. Now that's a man, and Mircea Eliada is a Romanian name. So this individual had fled the East block come to the University of Chicago and was at the time one of the top sociologists of religion in the world and he wrote a book called Shamanism Archaic Techniques of Ecstasy. And when I read that book it was like something connected for me because he was writing about people in shamanistic religions and he was you know using some of the same kinds of ideas that were in the James book but he was describing really crazy, wild, far-out stuff like shape-shifting, people who could change from a human into an animal and back. He was talking about people who would go to these religious ceremonies, maybe in the highlands of Papua or elsewhere, and they might, as part of the ceremony, get run through with a spear, only to have the spear withdrawn from them by whoever was the spearman, generally a man, could have been a woman, but run through by a spearman, and with his own eyes, he watched the wound close. Um, He watched people, shamans, uh, walk on fire, and so he was describing these things. He didn't really have language of demons. That that would have been out of bounds at the University of Chicago, probably would have gotten him removed from the faculty, but anyway, he was describing all this stuff, and I was thinking, this this is a really important thing that he's talking about here, and so anyway, that kind of further drew me into the funnel, and as I said, the Lord ultimately directed me to John Wimber, who was at the time kind of breaking ground in this area with a handful of other people whom I got to know. And, uh, and my, my interests weren't merely in the demonic, they were in spiritual gifts, prophecy, healing. Um, but anyway, after some early successes and failures... Uh, that I detail in my basic deliverance series and if you haven't listened to that um, we have copies on the table we also have everything available in mp3 cards if you want to load it to your computer and from there export it to your phone or your tablet anyway after those things uh, I, I really I don't know I just started to gain some traction with it and pretty soon um, I don't know I just had a long list of clientele So I had a lot of experiences in our church, I won't really detail them today, but let's just say I did all the things that pastors do and I I played that role, um, even though I didn't have that title, and the main reason was because I was traveling with John a lot and helping him with what he was doing, so I didn't have time to sit in an office and be a pastor at the home church. And so I'm I'm explaining all of this to you just to give you some sense of what, what was my process, what was my... Trajectory that got me involved in this, uh, in this ministry. So out of all of that, um, I came to what I today call an integrated model of restoration. We could say healing, but I think restoration is a better word because I think the Lord's intention is that we walk in, this is a dangerous word, it often inflames people because of some abuses in maybe 50, 70 years ago Uh, but I think it's the Lord's intention that we walk in divine health, which is way better than just getting healed because then you don't need to get healed. You just sort of, you know, it says of Moses that when he died, his strength was not diminished and his vigor was not abated and his eye was undimmed, which means he didn't have cataracts and he probably wasn't even wearing these. A lot of times I don't wear mine. And I can see all of you, but you're just a little bit fuzzy, and I'm kind of picky about that, so I wear these so I can see very crisply what's going on. But oddly enough, the older I get, my eyesight is improving. These, these glasses that I just got early this year are actually a weaker prescription than what I had three years ago. So there's something going on in my body that's it's at least pointing in the direction of what, I'm, what I believe, and I, I think there are other things I could point to that, for example, that my hair is still here. (laughs) But anyway, um, so I think this is God's objective. I'm not saying everyone achieves it, but if we understand that that there might actually be that place in the Lord that if we're living as he would have us to live, maybe we can connect with that and we can escape a lot of the terrible things that are in our world in terms of mental illness, physical illness, emotional problems, etc., But there is a key to this, and it's a very important key. I'll talk about this on uh, Sunday in our our Sunday morning message. And, And that's called our covenant with him. God makes a covenant with us. And I think one of the big reasons that we see so much difficulty in the world today is people are covenant breakers, and they don't even know it. Because we become ignorant of the ways of the Lord. And with that, we unwittingly violate what he wants us to do. And of course, the further you are from him, the more likely it is you're going to do that. It's to the point where it ultimately becomes nearly a certainty. But even in the church, people don't understand the word of God. They don't understand the ways of God. And as a result, they're often doing things, again, hopefully unwittingly, but I will say pastorally, as I interact with people in various fellowships, around the world, as I talk with church leaders, sometimes they know exactly what they're doing and they just do it anyway because it doesn't suit them. It's not convenient. And I, I, I come to the place where I sometimes want to say, why did you sign up for Christianity? You know, Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? And so it could be, I, I, I don't know what each of your stories is, but it may be This weekend that some of you will get confronted with things in your own life, your own choices, your own world, that you are doing or have done. Perhaps you knew darn well what you were doing and you just said, devil may care. You threw caution to the wind and you end up in a mess. That's not on God. That's on you. And there will be others of you that unwittingly did things not having any idea because maybe you never heard it taught. Maybe you didn't know that part of the Bible. There could be many reasons, but... However it works, that's more sins of omission versus sins of commission. But however it works out, if we're out, of, if we're out of bounds with his covenant with us, that could actually be a cause of grave difficulty in our lives. And we don't like to hear that very much, and that's because of the hyper-grace message has threaded through the church for the last especially 20 years, but it goes back a little further than that. And I'm being a little bit cavalier as I say it this way, but essentially the hyper-grace message says, do anything you want to do because no matter what you do, God's going to love you the same. There's nothing you can do that will make him love you any less. There's nothing that you can do that will make him love you any more. So go and sin boldly that grace may abound. And Paul actually had a response to that. It was absolutely not. But these are the times in which we live. And as lawlessness increases in the earth... Um, the need for deliverance is rising because people are getting into more and more trouble and again sometimes we find ourselves in it. So tonight I want to uh, talk about some uh, case studies in unusual or advanced deliverance topics to wet our appetites. Now I said my overall approach is what I call um, an integrated model and as I said of few minutes ago, deliverance is not the silver bullet. It's not the one-size-fits-all answer, but it needs to be part of your toolkit. It's not an optional part of your toolkit. And if you're offended by it or you don't like it or it's messy or something, I don't know what to say. Get over it. Repent. Change your mindset. Because if you want to see the kingdom come, you have to have a kingdom mindset. Jesus said the kingdom comes to those who get that kingdom mindset. Repent means to change your mind. So whatever you may have been taught or whatever, you know, rethink it. So when we talk about an integrated approach, um, we have to talk about different kind of channels of healing or, or columns of healing, if you like that word better. Inner healing is a powerful and useful tool for dealing with past hurts. And it can plow the ground so that deliverance can come afterward, or it can be a thing unto itself. If there are no demons to kick out, to drive out, to expel, then there's no demons to drive out. So inner healing is not the same thing. Come out. Inner healing is not the same thing as deliverance. And this is one of our biggest areas of confusion as we teach on this. Many, many, many people have been told, if you just do enough inner healing, you'll cave in all the demonic structures and the demons will just float away. No, they won't. Demons only leave when they are forcibly evicted. The word that that is often used for deliverance in the Bible is akbalo. Lou Engel has made that word popular. Drive Drive out the workers into the harvest field laborers and evangelists and church planters, drive them out, send them forth, thrust them into the harvest fields of the world. And that's a good use of the word ekbalo. The same word is used for demons. Force them out. Boom, get going. They don't just drift away. They hang around. And even if you cave in the structure because you've done all this inner healing They'll just hang out around that thing that was their habitation until they are later evicted. I I had an experience in Houston, Texas a couple of years ago. I was visiting friends, and um, the husband asked me to pray with him about something, so we went into his home office, and we were praying in there. And then he said, you know, my kids and my wife need some ministry too. And I was like, okay, here we go. This this was going to be a 15-minute thing that's now become a four-hour thing. Um, but anyway, he brings his wife in, and there was a situation in, in her life. And 20 years before she had been in a meeting, she had been touched by the Lord, but nobody had finished the job. The demons had been left behind. And when they told me the story, I said, your problem is you still have an evil spirit. And she goes, how can I have an evil spirit? I'm a good Christian woman. I, you know, I go to church. I take care of my wife and kids. We give to many missionaries. And, then and I looked at her, and I said, that thing is right there. Come out. Boom, it came out. Good thing we had a trash can, because she was, she was barfing in the trash can. But she got completely free of this evil spirit. And so it is, it is a fiction that inner healing is a substitute for deliverance. It's often a cognate thing, but it is not a substitute. What is inner healing, just to make sure we're all on the same page? Well, it's good for dealing with um, memories and emotional damage. Whereas, deliverance is useful for breaking bondage, which is to say enslavement, whether to urges or to substances or to lifestyle choices which have come out of those urges and from which we cannot simply walk away or break free. And so this is one of our quickest and easiest kind of, you know, diagnostics that lets us kind of quickly figure it out. If people can't seem to stop it, if it overpowers them and takes control of them, it's probably a deliverance problem, not an inner healing problem. All right. Deliverance is a dramatic power encounter whereby two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, or if you prefer the language of kingdom of heaven, you can use that, because kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven are the same, where these two come into direct conflict. And I often like to say you can hear the clash of swords and the clang of battle. And so... um, Jesus preached on the kingdom of God heavily, and in fact, one of the things I've found is when we preach on the kingdom, everything gets stirred up, and a lot of churches don't want to do this much anymore. Uh, I one time was leading a series of meetings in another country, and the leader of an entire denomination came to me, and he said, you know, you preach on the kingdom of God, Uh, Like somebody from the 1980s, your message is dated. And he said, honestly, the rest of us have moved on. Well, I didn't say much, but I was thinking as he said that, yeah, but we have people delivered in every single meeting I lead among your churches. And so the fruit is there, and you never have demons manifest in your meetings. You never have people get set free. So how has moving on worked for you, as we say, right? How's that working for you? I didn't say any of that, but that's what was in my head. Sometimes, sometimes wisdom is just to say nothing. <laughs> but deliverance is this conflict between God's in-breaking kingdom exhibited in the power of God. It's that, it's that conflict there where it comes to shatter, to break, to loose whatever shackles the enemy has put on people so that they can't get free. And I mention all that primarily because I want you to understand that, for me, deliverance is very much a kingdom thing. I think sometimes people want to turn it into a, almost a circus, it's a bit of a sideshow. Um, or they want to be very dramatic about it. You know, there's a line in the movie Gladiator. How many of you saw that movie? Okay, good, we've got the right crowd. I figured, I figured with your church, Erie, it would have to be right. There's a line in the movie Gladiator where Maximus has been uh, taken captive and he's now apparently in North Africa and they have him as a gladiator and they put him in the arena and uh, that particular gladiator uh, school is run by a man named Proximo. And so Maximus, of course, does quite well at this. He's been a general and he's well-trained. And so he kills his opponent and, uh, and then he throws the sword up into the viewer's box, and it almost hits Proximo. Probably would have impaled him the way it was you know, spinning. And he says, are you not entertained? So anyway, Proximo comes to him, and he says, your problem, gladiator, is you kill too quickly. Let the people see a show, or give the people a show. I think in the realm of deliverance, a lot of times people want to make it a show. I'm not interested in a show, but I do want to kill quickly. When a demon shows up, I want it to be trodden underfoot. As Paul said, the God of peace will soon tread Satan under your feet. And so with that, we, we enter this, not with a cocky attitude, but with a surety of victory, and maybe with the kind of steely determination of a, of a platoon of army rangers or navy seals about to go into battle we're the best we know we're the best we got the goods and everyone's coming home alive and they're all going home dead that's how we need to be thinking about this when we engage in this level of healing and warfare so I minister deliverance in conjunction with inner healing along with traditional spiritual disciplines which don't get talked about much in renewal churches these days uh, but the, the Latin term for it all is curai animarum, the care of souls. And this could include everything from forgiveness of sins, forgiveness of others, uh, the taking of the sacraments, scripture reading, meditation, periods of prayer, fasting. All of these things are, are part and parcel of it. Um, most people today, because of the way American society works, they're, they're looking for techniques I can teach you techniques, but I can't build into your soul what you need to have in your soul and so we need it we need a deep and abiding spirituality that's anchored on the traditional Christian disciplines and if you've become you know somehow lax in those, let me suggest that you want to go back to uh, doing those things, even if people around you think they're odd um, oftentimes, not always, but often. The difficult cases, things like psychosis or schizophrenia or healings that don't seem to happen or don't last, and those aren't the same thing, right? You, a healing that doesn't happen means you're stuck. It's like you hit the wall. When people get a healing but then lose it, well, then people say, well, what happened? Usually people don't have an answer, but more often than not, when you have that happen, there's, there's a demon there that didn't get addressed. And so it went back to doing what it was doing after the presence of God through that power encounter was reduced. Some people say, well, can't God just drive out the demon anyway? He could, but he usually won't. He usually wants you to do that work because that's the instruction we've been given. Jesus said in Mark 16, these signs will accompany those who believe. And first on the list of five, they will drive out demons. So if you haven't been driving out demons lately, something's Something's out of kilter. Either you're not aggressive enough in your attempt to bring the kingdom forward. That's one possibility. Oh, did we find your missing tag? Look at you. You're now legit. (laughs) Uh, So we we may not be aggressive enough in our attempts to drive the kingdom forward, or we may not be consecrated enough in our spiritual life. And as a result, we don't have... What makes the demons quake and tremble when we come into the room or the grocery store or the office? Does that make sense? Not everybody's called to have specifically a ministry of deliverance, perhaps, but everybody is called to drive out demons. These signs will accompany those who believe. Do you believe? Well, then you should be casting out demons at least sometimes when it's when it's relevant and appropriate to the way that you serve the Lord. So deliverance is an ancient and oft-neglected gift to the church, and Jesus gave it to us for a reason. And the ancient church commonly practiced deliverance on new converts, particularly due to the pagan environment in which that church was operating. Remember, the ancient Roman world, and if you weren't in the Latin speaking parts, you were probably in the Greek speaking parts, or maybe over towards Persia, or you know, up in Germany, or something. But wherever you may have been, everybody everywhere worshiped all kinds of gods. We're coming to that time right now in the United States of America. This used to be a nation where it was well understood when we said God, we meant the Judeo Christian God that's named in the Bible, and this is who you served. And there may be pockets of sanity still left in our country, like right here in Apple Creek. But I assure you, if you get outside of those little places, those islands, of, uh, where there is still some Christian sensibility, that is all being swept away, and people are going after every single thing under the sun. So... Um, In ministering to people, I frequently find the need to switch back and forth uh, from ministering to the spiritual life, dealing with inner healing, maybe managing physical healing issues, and then, of course, deliverance itself. Now, all of this is covered in quite a bit more detail than I can possibly address tonight in my series on intermediate healing. I didn't bring a lot of it because it's kind of an expensive school. But I had some on the table when I came in and some people started buying it. up. I don't know what's left of it. We also have it on the MP3 cards and you can get it off of our website if you want to buy it. Um, But anyway, some or all of these various dimensions that I've just named uh, may be present in any particular case of healing that we undertake. So we have to be ready to operate from an integrated perspective. And if we're going down the path towards this and we hit whatever that barrier is, we, we switch techniques, but we stay on the line of attack. When I was about 20 years younger, I had a bunch of friends who were special operations war fighters. And uh, I was never in the service, but I really respect people who do this. I respect their athleticism, their, uh, their boldness, their courage. Um, I respect their weapons handling there's a lot of things about that life that I think is is something that, you know, I think we do well to infuse a lot more of that back into American culture, but little by little it's being withdrawn. Anyway, so I got to know these guys, and because they love what they do, they train even when they're not on duty, and so I got invited to some training weekends in Nevada and Arizona, and, you know, they get the training officer from whatever their unit was, and you know, sometimes we'd have helicopters and RPGs and other cool stuff like that. And we'd be out in the mountains or whatever. And one of the things that's really impressive to watch one of those guys when, when they're really tuned up... I was good enough to hold my own, but I wasn't, I wasn't at their level. But they still kept me around. Um, but one of the things that was always impressive was to watch a guy in full battle rattle when you know, we had to enter a building or breach through a structure or something... He might, be, he might have his M4 in his hands, and he'd have a bunch of, you know, magazines on his chest in his, in his bulletproof vest. Uh, but he'd have a, some sort of a shotgun with a breaching round over his shoulder. He'd have usually two handguns uh, for backup. If one goes down, you can draw the other one. There'd be a knife in the boot or something, but, you know, this person was really armed. And you know we'd be going along, and all of a sudden you just hit an obstacle, and without even blinking, they would just drop the M4 and transition. Sometimes to a knife, sometimes a handgun. Very commonly, the shotgun would come slung over the shoulder, go right through the door, and the next guy in the stack, while that guy's still recovering and picking up his M4, the next two guys behind are going in, entering the room, and clearing it. It's like a machine; it just goes. And that's what I want you to have in your mind of what a fully trained uh, minister of the gospel can do. Yes, we'll have moments where we bog down and you know, we're under artillery fire or whatever and you can't move forward. Fair enough. But the standard model that we're trying to move toward is that fluidity of operations. So that if it's inner healing, you go over there, but then you come over here to physical healing and deal with the spiritual issues, deliverance back to inner healing. Then, you know, you're just, there's no real hesitation in it. I see it. I know it. Go. Does that make sense? So if we can, can kind of have that as where we're trying to get to, I think that'll, that'll serve us well. So in the New Testament, we have several examples of people who were healed in whichever dimension of healing they needed because of the expulsion of demons. One of those is found in Mark chapter 9. Now in this story, we have a demonized boy, and he appears by all appearances to be epileptic. It doesn't, it, the, the Bible doesn't actually say that, although some translations render it that way. But the Greek word for epilepsy is actually missing from this account. But it says in 9.14, Mark 9.14, when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. So when the religious leaders are arguing with you about your ministry, it's not a good day. And immediately, all the crowd, when they saw Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. This is one of the things that you'll also find. Oftentimes, people know when there's a spirit. And it's easy to be skeptical, especially if they're people who otherwise lack credibility markers in their lives. You know, they're kind of a mess emotionally they don't pay their bills they're unkempt they're disheveled so you could easily be dismissive but in this case it's the father speaking of his own son and he says he has a spirit that makes him mute I've lost count of the number of times especially in foreign countries when people have brought whoever to me might have been their child but it could have been their husband or wife or grandma or whoever uncle Fudd and they, they want to have this person set free, and they will say, there is a spirit that overtakes them. This is how we recognize it. This is when it happens. It's predictable. It's knowable. Boom. In many cultures of the world, they're very sensitized to this. We are very unsensitized to it because of the world in which we live. We're regaining that in the West, but it's not always with good intention. There are people who actually want to go toward the demons because they want the power they give them, and with that, they become more demonized, and they don't realize what they've given themselves over to. So this father says, you know, this, this spirit overtakes my boy, and when that happens, he can no longer talk. That's what it means to be mute. So maybe the kid's in the middle of talk. You say, well, what just happened there? Well, that spirit took possession of him. He said, well, I thought that was caused by early childhood trauma. Well, it could be an emotional issue as well, but, but these evil spirits will take advantage of that and they'll anchor in based on it. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. Now, this is better seen than described, but I don't know if I have enough strength and energy tonight to act it out. Sometimes I do. But... Boom, he hits the ground, and he goes rigid, and but he's not talking. They know what this is, and I've seen this happen. There was a period of time in the Australian revival where there would be people in the crowd, and this would happen. They'd get thrown to the ground in the aisle, and they'd be rolling around like that, and at first, people were really disconcerted because they weren't used to seeing this in church. And, uh, you know, we'd have to take them out and get the demons out of them, and then they would return and they'd be better. But this kind of behavior is not atypical of, uh, you know, heavier epile- epilepsy, grand mal seizures. And so he answered them and said, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Now, he is not talking to the Father. He's talking to his disciples. And the the background here is that he's been up on the Mount of Transfiguration, the immediately preceding verses in chapter 9, talk about that. And he's been up there with uh, Peter and James and John, and so he's left the nine apostles to run the revival meeting while he's up praying, and they can't handle this situation. And what he's saying is, guys, I gave you power and authority. I gave it to you way back, and you've been riding around following me, in learning how to do these things, but when the chips are down and I'm not here you can't actually stand and deliver. By the way, in the special operations warfighting community, that is the actual litmus test. When they train you in a weapon system, you have to deliver whatever shot it is, or if it's a strike or something with a knife or whatever. It has to be on target perfect every time because a lot of times you're in very tight quarters. You, you, know, you don't have a lot of room to maneuver. There could be other people around that you don't want to injure, but you've got to kill that terrorist right now. Boom! So when they test you, they look, where's the bullet hole? And so again, I'm trying to show you where we want to get to. You may not be there right now. That's okay. Everybody has to go through basic training and advanced training and so on and so on. But, but at the end of the game, that's what we're shooting for. If you don't even know what you're aiming for, you won't ever get there. Does that make sense? So he's unhappy with his disciples that they don't know what to do with this. And they bring the boy to him. And as the spirit saw him, there it says it again, it was an evil spirit. Immediately it convulsed the boy or threw the boy into a convulsion, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. So, if you've ever seen that, you know exactly what that looks like. But it's, you know, it's foam, it's spit with a lot of bubbles in it. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it's often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him, whether to burn him up or drown him, apparently. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. What, that's been used a lot of ways in kind of faith teaching and so forth. And I'm not here to address any of that tonight. But I will say this, in the context, it means if you understand the authority that you've been given by the Lord, then there should be no demon that you can't, you can't defeat. I remember one time being down in southern Mexico. We were doing a lot of ministry in Central America, and the Lord was opening doors to many countries. And uh, we were, did this one meeting, very large meeting, in a uh, in a church that was in the second story of a of a mall. And, you know, it had what you'd expect in a mall downstairs, but you had to come up this staircase to get upstairs. And in the middle of the meeting, this person started manifesting. And so I asked the some of the team, because I was preaching, so I I couldn't just stop what I was doing to take care of that. I asked some of the team to take him out and and they took this person in the, in an adjacent room. And I I could kind of see through the glass some things going on while I was speaking. But anyway, we took a break and I walked back there. And when I walked in, no kidding, the person was levitating at about this height. And they had been lying on their back, so they were in a supine position but they're levitating at about chest height and i walked in and i'm like okay the fight's really on here right and so i uh i asked the spirit for its name and it said its name was apollyon you may or may not recognize that name but it's in the book of revelation and this is the spirit and it's not an angel well it is an angel but it's not a good angel And it holds the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. Which in straight line English means this is the gatekeeper of hell. He's probably second to Satan in the demonic hierarchy. And I'm looking at this and it's levitating right there. And the eyes are red. And I'm thinking, I wish there were a Christian around here right about now. (laughs) But everybody's looking to me because I'm the team leader and I'm like, oh boy. But you know... This verse came to my mind, and the verse that came to my mind was when David goes into the valley of Elah, and Goliath is there, and he said, I have killed the lion and the bear, and God will give you into my hands too, you uncircumcised Philistine. And I I thought about the victories I'd seen of lesser demons vanquished, and I thought, those are lions and bears, now I'm facing Goliath. And I said, in the name of Jesus, you come out right now. And I'm telling you, that person hit the floor, boom, like a sack of rocks. And this spirit, and was gone. You can stand up to Apollyon. I've only run into that guy once, and it'd be fine if I don't meet him again anywhere. He's not the kind of guy you want to meet in a dark alley and have a knife fight with, I tell you, but... But the bottom line is, Jesus can give you that authority. He can give you that confidence. So Jason, now you know why I said that what you gave me uh, tonight was so meaningful. Jason walked up to me. He's one of my team, but he had no idea what I was going to talk about or anything other than deliverance very generically. And he gave me that bit about defeating the lion and the bear. It was kind of the front end of a prophetic word. He said, I don't know, but I really feel like I'm supposed to give this to you. And does this mean anything to you? So, I didn't give you much, but I let you know that I thought it was on target. So this epileptic boy, it's clear he has an evil spirit. Then we have um, other accounts. We have one in uh, the book of Matthew. And we have a man who's blind and mute. This one's found in Matthew chapter 12. And I'm taking a little bit of time to look at these passages tonight because the word of God has power. It will build our faith. And because I really firmly believe that one of the purposes of these types of events is not to give a 30-minute sermon. It is to get people shifted around into the place where they're operating with God. And that only happens on a foundation of God's word. I love the demonstration part and we're gonna do that. But if we don't lay down the tracks so that you really have something to build on, you know, we'll all pull out of here in a couple of days and you guys will still be going, which way did he go, George, which way did he go? So in Matthew uh, chapter 12, it says in verse 22, then a demonized man, most of your translations will either say demon oppressed or demon possessed. The one on the screens is using New King James. And traditionally, this is how this word is translated. And so the King James Bible picked it up, and it's still in most of our translations. But anyway, this man is demonized, and he was blind and mute Uh, and he healed him. Now, this is a really important passage because it's telling you that some blindness and some muteness is caused by an evil spirit. We already saw that in Mark 9, but now we're seeing it again in this passage. And so part of what we have to do is figure out how to diagnose, how to know what's what. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Which means literally for them the promised one and the king and when the pharisees heard it they they said we might say they sneered except the greek doesn't say sneered but i'm sure that tone was in their voice it's only by beelzebub the prince of demons that this man casts out demons and so jesus explains to them that that's not so and the verse i want to drop to immediately is verse 28 but if it is by the spirit of god that i cast out demons then know with surety that the kingdom of God has come among you. And so one of the things I love about deliverance is whenever it's happening, I know the kingdom of God is breaking out. You are literally right there watching it happen with ringside seats. That story, by the way, is captured um, in Luke also. And then in Luke 13, there's a story of a woman in the synagogue. And so I'm going there right now, Luke chapter 13. Um, And it says in uh, verse 10, now, he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, so it's Saturday, and Jesus is teaching. The scripture says elsewhere it was Jesus' custom to uh, go into all the synagogues, and more particularly, to attend synagogue. You know, we live in a time where there's a great apostasy going on in the American church. Uh, There was a report in the Sydney Morning Herald, which is admittedly not America, but Australian society and American society are quite parallel in, their, in the way they function and the things they are interested in. We speak the same language. They have a funny accent, but it's the same language. So there's a lot of things that are, I'd say, about 95% similar or overlap between our two societies. And uh, early this year, maybe it was around April or May, the Sydney Morning Herald carried a story that said, in the last three years coming through COVID, three years, the percentage of people in Australia who count themselves as Christians had declined 17 percentage points from uh, 64... No, make sure I got it right. 61% to 44% in three years. Now, that is probably happening in the U.S. as well. We just haven't done an up-to-date accounting of what's become of all the so-called churchgoers. But listen, before people even had uh, dropped out of going to church because of COVID, many of them had dropped out of believing what was being taught in the churches. They were just going through the motions. They don't believe the Bible. They don't read the Bible. The pastors are afraid to preach the Bible. It's one of the things I love about Yuri. Um, He stands on the word, and he's, he's really clear about that. And, you know, one of the things John Wimber always used to say is, don't preach your experience, preach the word. Or don't preach, uh, your, uh, preach the word, not your experience. It's the same meaning, but you could say it either way. And today, up and down in the land, and it's particularly true in the mainline denominations, but it's, it's creeping into charismatic churches as well, um, people will not actually preach what the word says. So here is this woman in the synagogue, we'll say church for our purposes, although, to be clear, a synagogue is not a church. And he's doing it on Saturday morning. And behold, there was a woman who had, depending on your translation, it might say an afflicting spirit, a crippling spirit, or a disabling spirit. But the point is, it's a spirit. That's the point. Never mind the, whatever adjective you're going to put on the front. And she'd had it for 18 years, and she was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your infirmity or your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. By the way, this story puts the lie to what you often hear people say, Don't touch demonized people, you'll get their demons. Jesus touched a demonized person. And he apparently did not get demonized. And I've been laying hands on people for years, uh, often with demons, and I I can't think of ever picking up a demon from doing that. Now, if you're in sin or you have an open door or you're looking for that, well, you might get a different outcome. But there's no reason to go around afraid that if you lay hands on somebody, you're going to catch a demon. Go in like a Navy SEAL or an Army Ranger and just blow their head off and put their face in the dirt, what's left of it, okay? And I'm saying it that way because I want you to have a little bit of steel in your soul. I want you to have a little bit of, as they say, blood in your eye because this is actually war that we're involved in. It is war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. All right, so this woman gets healed because of that. So there's three stories, an epileptic boy, a blind and mute man, and now this woman bent over in the synagogue all three of them, three different conditions, all of them have an evil spirit. So when we're talking about, you know, moving further into the funnel of, of watching dramatic breakthrough happen, you have to integrate deliverance as one of the tools. By the way, even in the Old Testament, we, it says that Job's afflictions were caused by Satan. Remember how first he loses all of his possessions and whatnot, and then he loses his health and he has these boils come up on his body. In Job 2.7, you can fact check me on it. It says, then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and he struck Job. God didn't strike Job. Satan struck Job. And so over and over we see this same pattern. Now I mention these various cases because it's easy to pass over these accounts, often barely noticing the biblical witness that these conditions were in fact caused by demons, by evil spirits. And so commonly, probably not in this church, but still we have to fight the mentality and the worldview that's continually trying to come upon us like blinders to, to quench us and you know, keep us from moving forward. Commonly these accounts are dismissed as relics of another time Artifacts of when people were suspicious, superstitious and they believed in evil spirits, but which we in our modern age have come to understand as archaic. And so we know better because we have cell phones or whatever. There's a nuclear power plant, you know, up on the lake. And so we don't need to think about these things. Well, we actually do. What if the Bible is correct and what if it affirms? what if healing the sick and driving out demons are in fact linked and there's a passage actually that I want to show you in Mark chapter 1 verse 39 I don't often preach on this single verse and I'm more teaching than preaching tonight but in Mark chapter 1 verse 39 uh, we have this single little verse and he went throughout all Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons Mark 1:39 Now, Mark has a particular emphasis, fascination with the demonic, and he he talks about it more than any other uh, writer in the Bible. And I think part of that's because Mark was writing to a Roman audience, and the Romans were heavily demonized as a people because of their idolatry, because of their sexual immorality, because of their drunken licentiousness. All of these things became gateways for them. By the way, I just described American culture. Did you catch it? And so, um, you know, Mark, Mark focuses on this. But know what he said, and he went throughout all Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. How does Matthew render that? Well, in Matthew 4.23, he went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues. Well, oh, that's kind of interesting. Sounds pretty much the same, doesn't it? Except Matthew kind of spins it a little differently. He says, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the invasion of the kingdom of God and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So Matthew makes it sound more like healing, but since all of the Bible is true, and it's clearly using verbatim the same language in the kind of preamble description there, if Mark's talking about driving out demons, then, then the underlayment that causes the healing to go on that Matthew talks about, it necessarily must be deliverance. And Matthew even tips you off, although you may not know it, when he says affliction, because the only time that word is used in the New Testament is to refer to evil spirits that cause physical debilitation in people. So when it says he was healing afflictions, it, you could just say, oh, they were afflicted. They were sorely you know, suffering, and Jesus set them free of that. Yeah, but the, the, but the point is the word itself means the underlying causal agent was an evil spirit. And so, in case you wondered, it goes on in verse 24. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons. What's the difference there? If If afflicted means evil spirits, why do you need to mention oppression by demons? Because one class of demons brings you into physical debilitation and brings diseases and sickness on you, and another one oppresses you and causes problems with your mind and your emotions. And so whether it was physical affliction or it was oppression, either way, he was healing them. The net effect was, excuse me, the net effect was healing. But you can see right in that Simple verse there, two verses, the power of deliverance being wrapped into all of this. And then again in uh, Matthew chapter 9, it says this, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues. Okay, that sounds just like Mark one thirty nine again. But now he says, Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the invasion of God's kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. There it is again. So it's actually right there in plain view. It's just that many times we don't read the Bible with the original eyes, because it was written in Greek, and even translators, people who know the Greek well, the Old Testament's written in Hebrew for those that are stuck on what I said about Greek. Um, but for people who know the underlying language as well, It's very obvious to them, but sometimes in the way it gets translated into English because translators typically are not people who operate in signs and wonders. This language kind of gets glossed over and homogenized and somehow the the, the pungency of it all gets lost. Well, if this is so, then the church must be equipped to minister in deliverance to have a ministry that looks like that of Jesus himself. That's it. Beginning and end. So, with that, I'd like to share um, a few case studies with you, and I could probably wax eloquent till midnight with these. So, I'll have to cherry pick them. I've got quite a few of them in my notes. But this first one occurred um, middle of the last decade, and I'd gone to Taiwan. I was in Taipei, and just to give you context. Um, Taiwan is not a Christian country. It's a close ally of ours uh, in terms of you know, world affairs, but, but it is not a Christian country. 95% of Taiwan is Buddhist or Shinto or Taoist. These are three different religions. You don't need to know what any of them is. You've probably heard of Buddhism. It's less obvious you, that you would know the other two. But anyway, this is Taiwan, and 95% of the people there... follow one of those other religions. By the way, just as a comparison note to help you start thinking broadly, Australia at this point is 95%. uh, That's not the right way to say it. The number of people in Australia who are Christian and practicing it, not just claiming to be Christian, is comparable to the number of practicing Christians in Taiwan. The rest of them are just going through the motions. They may not ever go to church. They may have been baptized when they were born, you know, in some whatever Presbyterian or Uniting Church or Catholic Church or something. But the way they live, they they really don't behave at all like Christians. And so... Taiwan and Australia have a comparable number of people, and so they're very interesting, comparable case studies. It just happens to be that in Australia, rather than Buddhism, Shintoism, and Taoism, we talk about things like secularism, atheism, agnosticism, um, Malthusian economics, and unbelief. These also can have evil spirits behind them. I have driven spirits of atheism and agnosticism out of many people. These are parallel religions, but we don't tend to think of them as religions because how can somebody be religious who denies God? This is their religious point of view. And again, I got the, the ability to kind of understand that and get to that conclusion. That came to me from William James in this Varieties of Religious Experience book. Well, Okay, so here we are. We're in Taipei. And I got invited to go to this very exclusive group of people who are... Uh, gathered together for um, what amounts to a ladies' luncheon, but they were allowed to bring some of their husbands and boyfriends and things along. it wasn't a very big group. It was in the neighborhood of 50 people all up. But anyway, one of them there was a champion athlete, and he he was Japanese by birth, and he had married one of the women there. And the woman that he'd married is one of the most popular people in Taiwan. Uh, They call her the Oprah Winfrey of Taiwan. And when she posts something on Facebook, within just a few moments, I mean, literally not even 15 seconds, she'll get 500,000 likes on it. That's the level of visibility and favor that she has. And she's a believer, and she's married to this guy, and he, as I said, was Japanese, and in the previous Olympic cycle, he had been the captain of the Japanese snowboarding team. And he'd had had an accident, he'd gotten injured uh, snowboarding. And so the injuries forced him to retire and he lost his sponsorships. A lot of his friends that he thought were his friends who weren't really his friends, they were just professional colleagues that were also athletes. And So they kind of palled around together and did Olympic training together and went to Olympic events together. They basically bailed out on him and he fell into a depression. And um, the bone in his right foot continued to degenerate and it was this area of the foot right here where the leg comes down and joins the top of the instep uh, where the break had happened. Well, as you might have supposed, these people, money was not their issue. So they put him on a plane and sent him to the United States and he went to Mayo Clinic, he went to uh, Johns Hopkins, he went to Harvard Medical School. Nobody could figure out how to fix this and so by the time i show up he's he's barely able to walk and as i said this bone has been degenerating getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and the doctors had told him when i met him that he would be crippled for life and never walk again within the month and when we broke for lunch from uh this meeting that we were having We went down the street and around the corner to this little restaurant and ate there. But I'm telling you, it was not even 100 yards, and he could barely make it. In fact, it was so bad that a couple of us kind of grabbed him and did a battlefield carry to get him into the restaurant so he could eat with us, and then we had to carry him back. And so, you know, he was destined for this wheelchair. and No one could figure out what was wrong. So as I began interviewing him, I understood from what he told me that he had Shinto and Buddhist background. Well, this is not uncommon in many parts of the world where people practice two or more religious systems. It used to be that if you made that statement in a Western setting like this one, people would kind of furrow their brow and shake their head because we understood intrinsically as people who were raised Christianly, even if we weren't always fully Christian, that there's only one God and you're only supposed to serve that God. So how do you have two religions? But in many parts of the world, this is very common. It's in India, Sri Lanka. It's very common to meet people who are both Hindu and Buddhist. It's very common in Taiwan to meet people who are Shinto and Tao or Buddhist and Tao or Buddhist and Shinto or all three of them. They see no contradiction in that. And by the way, neither does the modern American citizen, whether Christian or not. That's why Christians are getting involved in yoga. They should know that this is Hinduism and it's not okay, but they do it anyway. Tattooing, same sort of thing. We can go right down the list of all these syncretistic behaviors that people are engaging in in our society and they don't realize they're getting themselves into a a big giant mess. Remember what I said earlier about sometimes it's unwitting, and sometimes they know darn well what they're doing and they do it anyway. And I'm telling you, I've had more conversations with people who would rather die for their yoga and their yoga mat than for their Jesus. I'm serious. And when we get done tonight, I'm I'm telling you right now, I'm going to give an altar call for those of you that have been mixed up in yoga to come down here and repent of that, because you're tied up with some Hindu demons, and that's why you still have pain in your back and your legs, because those demons, kundalini spirits, are afflicting you in your bones and in your nerve endings, and some of you are going to get delivered of that tonight, if you will forsake it. If you won't, you're on your own. So anyway, as we start talking with this guy... <clears throat> yeah, he's Shinto and Buddhist by background. He's a Christian now. But, you know, like many people who come to faith, he'd never gone through a thoroughgoing repentance, like turning away from all that stuff. So he's a syncretist too. He's a, he's a Budo-Christian Shinto or something. A Christo-Shinto-Budo something. I don't know. And when I asked him about his involvement with these other you know, religious systems, he characterized these things as nominal Uh, But he had engaged in temple worship, including worship of the ancestors, which is very prominent in the Shinto religion. You wouldn't know that. You have no reason to know that. But if you've ever been involved, say, in trying to contact your dead grandma because it made you feel good, and this is really common even in Christian circles in in America, or your mother died or your dad or something. Um, Pat, I don't think you were in the program when we had um, Colleen. In the program. She was ahead of you at that time. This this is the benefit of having been in the three-year program for eight years. Um, (laughs) Anyway, we had a woman in our doctoral program at a Christian seminary who was a bishop in her denomination with 54 churches under her, and she told us in our cohort meeting that she Um, communed with her dead mother and when she would summon her dead mother there would be a flock of uh, cardinals that would gather in the bush just outside the window in her living room and they would all gather and chirp and sing and go on like this and she would feel her mother's presence and she would feel comforted and she's talking like this is perfectly normal and I'm looking at her and she looked at me and she said uh this isn't okay and I said no. I said, you're a bishop. Y- you're, you lead 54 congregations. You, h- how are you doing that? She goes, well, I don't know. It just comforted me. And I said, did you never read in the Bible how you will not permit a necromancer to live? She goes, what necromancer? I said, a necromancer is somebody who communes with the dead. And she had a couple of long lasting conditions in her body. And, uh, and I said, do you want to get rid of those? And she said, yeah. And I said, are you willing to renounce your necromancy? She, Does that mean I never get to talk to my mom again? I said, in heaven. So I got her to repent of it. Power of God hit her like a lightning bolt, and she was healed. Boom, right there. These aren't just theoretical stories from long ago. And I'll tell you something. You guys live right in the center of Amish community. I think that's an Amish farm across the street. You got a bunch of them down that road because Yuri took me down that road for dinner last year. And we drove, what was it, five miles or something to get to that restaurant. And there was Amish farms all along. Necromancy is part of what they do in the Amish community. You know that Amish hex sign that they often put on their barns and stuff? That's also an occult symbol. And so the Amish appear outwardly to be Christian. And I'm not saying all Amish do this, but a sufficiently large number of them do that if you're going to be ministering in Amish country, you better know what you're up against. And when you're, so that when you see it, you're like, that is a target indicator. Go to guns on. Rather than, oh, yeah, you know, that's just what the Amish do. It's cool. (laughs) You got to know the battlefield, you got to know the environment in which you operate. So back to Taiwan. So this guy says, Well, you know, it's kind of nominal, but yeah, I've been to temple worship and I've done the ancestor worship. And um, anyway, I had him renounce his involvement with idol worship, ancestor worship, and then I commanded the spirits to leave. And then right in the middle of that, I'm praying for him and he's still not healed. So sometimes there's these layers you got to go through. Right in the middle of that, this scripture floats into my consciousness. And and the reason I did it that way is because it started down here on my lower left jaw. And it floated to the top of my head. And it was a scripture that I knew quite well. It comes out of Psalm 22. All my bones are out of joint. And I'm like... And I mean, I got everybody watching me. I've got Chiang Kai-shek's widow. Actually... Not strictly, because his widow had died. This was the girlfriend, because a lot of Christian people like Cheyenne Kai-shek and other good Christian leaders often have a woman on the side in addition to their wife. And this is commonplace throughout the world. By the way, that'll get you demonized too. Adultery is a huge issue. We don't even understand the implications of adultery But I've started to see the spiritual impact of it on people. And in mentioning these things, I'm trying to give you guys sensitivity to things that could be gateways so that when you're ministering to people, you won't say, well, you know, yeah, you had a dalliance, this stuff happens, but it's okay. It's under the blood. Jesus forgives you. Well, you might be forgiven, but you're still demonized. So you need to go back and get rid of the demon as well as picking up the forgiveness. Does this make sense? So anyway, the girlfriend is there, and like I said, this is kind of the creme de la creme of of Taiwanese society in this meeting, and I get that verse, and I'm like, huh, so this is the Bible I had, and so I I flip it open to Psalm 22, and as I flip it open to Psalm 22, all my bones are out of joint, and I get down to, uh, dogs surround me, strong dogs of Bashan, and I'm like, oh no. No, 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 Lord, give me anything else. No, please, no, not that. Anything but that, Lord, please. And he's just, I mean, I can just feel that like he's pressing on me. Do it, boy, do it. Press the trigger, right? (laughs) I'm like, no, Lord, no, not please, anything but that. So I literally cup my hands over my mouth, and I kneel down on my hands and knees in front of him, and I whisper right into the foot that I showed you right there so no one can hear me. I said, I command the spirit of the dog to come out of this foot. I'm thinking, I don't even have a theology for a dog spirit. I don't know what a dog spirit is, but I know the voice of the Lord and I'm doing this. And as soon as I do it, this guy jumps up and he runs around the room and the room's roughly as big as this sanctuary. And, uh, He is running around the room, and he's doing all these Olympic stretches and things that, you know, he knows to do because he's a trained athlete. And he does this for 15 minutes, and, you know, he's kind of bending like this, and he's doing all this stuff. And he comes over, and can you put up the picture for me? We'll see if we have the right one. (laughs) Maybe, maybe not. That's it. No, that's the guy with the broken neck who got his (laughs) neck healed. Okay, not that picture. (laughs) That's a different story from a different country. There, that guy, he's my new best friend because he's just gotten healed of a condition that's going to put him for the rest of his life in a wheelchair because I got rid of a dog spirit that I don't even have a theology for based on a scripture that the Holy Spirit whispers to me in a room full of really important people in Taiwan. That guy right there. And he's still healed to this day. He never had a relapse or anything. All right. um, This next story is also a Taiwan story. So this will be the woman. And there's a bundle of, I think, six or seven pictures you want to show. Same trip. um, We hold church. We hold a church meeting for this church that had invited us to come in um, in a nightclub in downtown Taipei. That's where they're meeting. And it, it looks like New York City, and it looks like Park Avenue, if you know Park Avenue, with you know, the planter that runs down the center of the, of the road. So this woman is in that meeting in the nightclub, and you can see the crowd that we have. And her uh, son brings her for healing. This woman is also a Buddhist. She's in her 60s, and three years previously she'd become a quadriplegic following routine surgery there was no reason they could figure out why she'd become quadriplegic and so they bring her in the wheelchair she's not a christian uh but i i asked her i said listen if you if jesus will heal you tonight would you be willing to renounce the buddha and she looks at me and she says if jesus will heal me i will renounce the buddha now buddhists are notoriously difficult to bring to faith this is just every missionary will tell you this there's just something in their mind, and they, they're very, it's almost like trying to play whack a mole. You know, when you think you've got something nailed down, something else pops up. So, anyhow, um, she says, Yeah, I'd be willing to uh, renounce the Buddha. She also had some Taoism in her background. And, you know, again, in America, we tend to think of Buddhism and Taoism as well, it's just your thing, and, you know, that's a philosophy. But there is actual real power behind these things, and the gods. Uh, that are in those thought systems. By the way, Buddhism doesn't require a god, and neither does Taoism, and yet both of them have whole pantheons of gods. Why? Well, because people always want to worship something. That's what's going on in America. People are still worshiping. They're just worshiping something other than the one true god who used to be the object of this country's religious focus. So... She renounced her participation in these religions um, on my instruction and told the spirits to leave her. And then I commanded the spirits to come out. And when I did, now you can see her sitting there in her wheelchair. Um, the, you know, her hands in particular show the chair, but in a second you'll see it a bit. <clears throat> okay, next picture. There she is, and there's the wheelchair in the background. And that's one of my team members that was traveling with me, and I'm taking the picture. (laughs) I don't usually take pictures of healings and stuff. I'm too busy doing the healing and deliverance. But every now and then, I'll stop and take a few. And so here she is with uh, Lulu. That's the woman on the left. And, okay, next picture. So this woman is now walking on her own with Lulu just kind of holding her arm because she her muscles are weak she hasn't walked in three years so she's stiff and you know there's a kind of a bit of a recovery curve that you've got to go through doesn't need to take forever but this is why when i see people you know vault out of wheelchairs and run around the room on tv i'm sometimes going well yeah it happens but i don't most of the time it's a little less dramatic but anyway so here she is taking her first steps and that's again uh, lulu's there helping her a bit. Okay, next picture. Another picture. So now she's up on the stage at this nightclub, and that guy on her right with the microphone, the light's kind of blinding the microphone fully, but you can see it. That guy's the pastor of the church, and he's speaking to the church. He's holding her hand, and you can see she's wiping her eyes because she's crying that she's been healed of four, three years of quadriplegia. Okay, next picture. Uh, I shouldn't have put that one in. Skip that one. Okay, there she's getting baptized by by us, and there's the pastor that you just saw, same microphone. Same guy. Now, we didn't have a baptistry. We're in a flipping nightclub. You can't, you can't put her in a tub. There's no, like, you know, pull the floor open and you've got a, you know, jacuzzi underneath that you can use. So we just got one of these. And it's less than ideal, but far better to be baptized, you know, suboptimally. than So she gets baptized the same night that she was up, that's only moments after she was crying, and only a few minutes after she came out of that wheelchair, and she makes a public confession of faith. And so there she is being baptized, and you can see her hair is a little bit wet because we, you know, dumped the water on her. All right, next. Is that the end of the string? Oh, yeah, okay. So that's the end of the string. So the last thing that happens is she walks out of the building pushing her own wheelchair home. When deliverance is what you need, nothing else will do. And so that one's another story of this kind of integrated approach. In both of these two stories, we're dealing with kind of the unique issues of Taiwan, but nevertheless, these things come into play. Here's another one, this, I don't have pictures for this one. Um, I was in uh, Sri Lanka, and I went to, um, uh, not the main city, which is Colombo, I went to Kandy, which is up in the mountains. And uh, they brought a man to me who had Parkinson's disease. He was a first-generation Christian. That's to say his ancestors had all been... uh, By the way, Sri Lanka is the center of Buddhism in the world. The Buddha supposedly got enlightenment in India, but it was early on exported to Sri Lanka, and they have a shrine in Sri Lanka where they have what is supposed to be a tooth of the Buddha, on exhibit, kind of reminds you of the cult of relics, um, and they have bow trees growing everywhere, and they're all protected. They're all holy trees, and so here we are in in Sri Lanka, and uh, this guy is the first man in his family ever to become a Christian, and he's got Parkinson's disease, and so I'm thinking about all the generations of Buddhism and the idolatry and the superstition, and I'm thinking about all of the gods that they worship in the Buddhist pantheon. And by the way, Buddhism is older than Christianity. It's about, Christianity is roughly 2,000 years old. And uh, Buddhism is about 2,500 years old. So it predates our faith by 500 years. Buddhism came into being about the time that the Babylonians were conquering Judah and deporting the Jews into exile. So I had him... um, to go through a prayer of renunciation and expulsion, uh, which I've taught before, but I'll do it before we're done with all this here this weekend. Um, repenting on behalf of his ancestors for their own idolatry and for violating the first commandment, which is specifically that they had some other God that took preeminence ahead of that one. Um And then we had him renounce the blessings and curses of his gods whom the ancestors had worshipped, including all of those that when he was a boy and not yet converted, he himself had engaged in. And then I commanded the spirits to leave. uh, And then I commanded the spirits to leave. And that's really what, that's the model I use. Renounce, reject, eject. Have them renounce it. And everybody teaches you to renounce. But that doesn't mean the demons are gone. That's just the first step that's softening up the beach for the invasion. Um, then we have them command the spirits to leave. And I don't believe in self deliverance, but um, I, what I do believe is that you're putting the spirits on notice. You will no longer be given sanctuary here. And I don't want anything that you have going on in my life. Whether it appears to be good or if it's bad or anything in between, I want it out. And you guys go, take it with you. Um, and then, you know, the deliverance minister, in this case it was me, we command those spirits to leave. And so that's what I did. And and when I did that, instantly his shaking stopped. I mean, right now. And when I left that city two days later, he was still as steady as a rock. No Parkinson's. Well, what are you going to conclude from that? Well, maybe a significant percentage of the Parkinson's that we're dealing with in America. It's one of the common questions people ask me in Q&A. How do you pray for Parkinson's? But the question then becomes, okay, if, if, it, if there's a spirit there, there's always a reason. It doesn't quite rhyme, but it almost does. If there's a demon, there's a reason. So if there's a, if there's a spirit behind Parkinson's, then how did that spirit get there, and what is it? And so with it, you'd do well to start <clears throat> asking questions of the person you're going to pray for, about you know, what have been your religious involvements, or those of your immediate ancestors, what, what have you gotten into? Maybe you went through a period in your high school years or college years or maybe a little beyond that where you were exploring and experimenting. Maybe you went on some trek in Nepal or in India or wherever. Maybe that's been your experience. Or maybe you tried hallucinogenic drugs. Nobody ever did that, right? Pot, hash, LSD... These days, ayahuasca. There's a bunch of other ones. I'm just naming a few. Mescaline, peyote. Oh, I got really into Carlos Castaneda, and so I decided to try the Yaqui way. Anyone know Carlos Castaneda? Good. That's actually good. If this were California, every hand would go up. So I decided to try the Yaki way, and I, you know, when I, I went out and got some peyote buttons and mescaline, and you know I smoked the peyote and, oh well, maybe there's where your Parkinson's is coming from. So you, you need to be thorough in your questioning too, because many times people will not know what they've done, <coughs> which is to say, they may well remember it, but they don't even think it's significant. So why should I waste your time talking about it? And so you need to, without, as Perry Mason used to say, leading the witness, you need to kind of draw out of them, what else have you been into? So, bang, that's a story where this thing happens, where intersection of all these various disciplines of integration and healing. This one comes from Australia, it's about 10 years old now, but... Um, I was in a Baptist church in the southern part of the country in a very, very remote area. You have to fly from here to Australia and wherever you enter the country, and then you've got to fly out to um, a provincial capital, but that'll be best case another hour of flying, and it might be two or three, depends on what, con- what city you enter the country from. And then once you get to that provincial capital, you either have to get on another plane and fly another hour into a very remote area on the ab- edge of aboriginal lands in the outback, or drive for six hours. I've done it both ways. But anyway, that's how remote this city was, or this town. She is a Christian woman, and they brought her forward during ministry time she was 90% blind in both eyes and 100% deaf in both ears. She had macular degeneration in the eyes, and her vision had declined progressively over several years. And when they brought her up, I looked at her, and it looked like some kind of a headset was on her head. But it wasn't there. It was I was seeing something in the spirit for just a moment, and then it was gone. And by the way, when you see this stuff in the spirit... It most commonly will be there for anywhere from a half a second to two seconds. It will not be there very long. So if you are not paying attention, you will likely miss it. And not only that, it will probably not be anywhere near as you know defined and clear as I am to you right now. It'll be way down on the what I call the grayscale index. That's what graphic artists call it, and it's it, it's it's typically almost transparent, but not quite. You see something for a second and then it's gone. And it may be color, it may be black and white, but that's typically how it's going to come, and that's what I saw with this headset. In my case, it was, it was a very clear that it was black, but I would have put the grayscale percentage at around 20 to 25%, one-fifth to one-quarter. That's all. And then I didn't see it anymore, and I'm like, hmm, that's weird, that shouldn't be there. You need this gift of discerning of spirits many times to be able to figure things like this out. When I got the thing about the dog spirit with the Olympic athlete in Taipei, Taipei, um, I didn't see anything, but that's because the Lord brought the gift in a different way with this thing of, you know, all my bones are out of joint, which leads me into a passage. And when I get to that one that talks about dogs surround me, strong dogs of Bashan, I mean, it was like, I was so clear. Have you ever had that happen where you just hit a scripture and you're like, I don't even know what this means, but I know God's talking. That's how that one was. So there's different ways this comes. And I'm, I'm taking time to explain that because I'm here to train you guys. I mean, sure, we're going to pray, but, but at the end of the day, you know, Yuri wants me to impart something to you. Well, the best way to do that is to explain to you exactly how does this really work? When it's going on, so when it happens to you, you won't go, oh, I thought it was me and the pizza I ate. (laughs) So I see this headset, and then it's gone. And so I commanded the spirit to leave, and there was a pretty sharp reaction in the body, kind of like that. And then she said, I can see and hear. And so she goes and sits in the back in the pew, and she had her four children with her, And I'm still up at the front praying for people, but I keep looking back at her to see what's going on. And each of these kids, they'd be pointing at things around the room. This church had some banners and things hanging on the wall. They pulled out a pew Bible. They're showing her the Bible. And you can see the kids nodding as they're showing her things. So it's pretty clear. They're affirming that she's reading correctly. And then similarly... um, these kids start whispering into her ear. They're cupping their hands over her ear and whispering, and then she's turning and saying back to them what she's heard, and they're nodding their head. It was very obvious. You didn't have to be there watching it. But I found out later this woman had never heard any of her children's voices in her entire life. So it was a very dramatic healing. Again, evil spirits interlinking with physical healing in order to get to the breakthrough. That woman is still a member of that church, and she is still healed to this day. Well, as I said, I've got tons of stories. I told you four. I've probably got, I don't know what I've got in here, about 15 or so. I could keep telling you story after story, but if I do, we'll never get out of here and everybody will be exhausted tomorrow. But, you know, they all have a remarkable consistency to them because of the interplay that I'm, that I'm aiming at. And I will simply say this, all of these that I've told you deal with physical healings. But in one case um, that I just have here, I'll just summarize it. There was a man who was trapped in masochism. He was married, but he couldn't, I want to be polite here because this is a mixed crowd and there's kids around, but let's just say he couldn't find pleasure in marriage without being flogged. And so when, when this couple came to me requesting prayer, um, I said to the wife, do you enjoy doing it? She goes, I hate it, but it's the only way he can find pleasure, so I do it for him. And when he got freed of that thing, um, he could find pleasure. We'll just leave it at that. And uh, they interacted as a, in a conventional manner. There's a good diplomatic way of putting it. Um, so that guy was the head of IT for one of the largest banks in Australia. And then there was another man. He was schizophrenic, and he couldn't hold down a job and his schizophrenia was caused by a spirit which had entered because of physical abuse that he had suffered when he was a teenage boy at the hands of his own mother. So, you know, we dealt with the, the, that incident with the mom, and this guy gets healed, and he was, a, he was a Chinese Australian. And the next time I went to that city, I walked into the meeting, and there was this whole contingent of Chinese people, and it turned out every one of them was schizophrenic because the Chinese community in Australia is quite insular. So everybody knows everybody. And it's not that big, if you are counting only the Christians, there might be a few thousand, but I mean, it's not, it's not millions. And so basically every Chinese schizophrenic in that entire territory had come because they'd heard that there was somebody who knew how to heal Chinese schizophrenics. And I said, well, that's actually Jesus, but Let's have a go. And we cleaned up like 30 schizophrenics that night. I mean, it was it was insane. We ran the table. Like I said, I've got tons of stories here. I'm just looking for just kind of the headlight uh, ones that don't have anything to do with um, physical healing alone. Because I want you to understand that this is a much broader category and those two stories illustrate that. Um, on another story, occasion, and I've told this story many times because there's only one like it, I would I led a retreat for gay and lesbian people in San Francisco. We actually had to move the venue and go underground because we were being hunted by the pink mafia. And this was put on by a therapist who had, at the time, clientele who were only LGBT. <coughs> and they wanted to get out. By the way, most of them do. The only reason they're militant is because they've They think we hate them, and secondarily, because they've been told, you can't change, so people have to accept you the way they are. But let me tell you, if they think they have an option to change, usually they will. And so I I will, somewhere in the conversation, ask the question, if you could change from this orientation, would you do it? And I just leave it there for them to ponder. And they'll always say, well, I can't change. I mean, science has proven it. Well, science hasn't actually proven that. And I know people who have gotten free, so let me ask it again. If you could get free, would you want that? Well, I don't believe it can happen, but sure, yeah. I mean, who wants to be like this? You're an outsider in society, and, you know, everybody else is kind of living a sort of straight life, and you, I've got this other life. And So anyway, this man was one of the guys who'd helped organize the retreat for The Therapist, and let me just say this, as I've already said, I don't think deliverance is the one-size-fits-all answer. But oftentimes, when you're dealing with people who are stuck in the LGBT lifestyle, you will need to be using deliverance. Often, not always, but often. So anyway, I teach at the first session of the retreat and this guy runs to the front, in front of the whole crowd. Well, 65 people, but you know that, that was enough of a crowd. That was the night's attendance. And, uh, and he goes, I'm ready. Except he he had a very defined way of speaking that you would recognize I'm ready. And I said, uh, right here in front of the whole room? He goes, right here. And I said, right now? Right now. I said, all right. And I'm telling you, the Heavenly Air Force showed up. And we called in an airstrike right on his position. When he got up off that floor, he was talking like a normal guy. He wasn't swishing his hips. And I saw him sometime later... I was up in the Bay Area, and I called him. I have him in my phone. I said, hey, you know, you want to get together for a meal? He goes, yeah. So I walk in the restaurant, and he's sitting there waiting for me. And we sit down to eat, and he goes, before we even order, I got a question for you. I said, okay. He said, you know, before you prayed for me that night, he said, if, if I'd been sitting in this restaurant, I would have been cruising every guy that walked in. And, uh, and I'm thinking, uh-oh, something slipped, right? And he, he goes... <clears throat> I'm not doing that now. I'm like, okay, good. And uh, he goes, but I have this other thing going on. I said, what's that? (coughs) Well, now I'm cruising every woman who walks in the restaurant. (laughs) He goes, that's not okay. I said, it's not okay, but I like problem two a lot better than problem one. (coughs) So... The causes of homosexuality are still being studied and there are some clearly identifiable themes in the lives of gay and lesbian individuals. And so I don't want to oversimplify by saying, you know, cast out a demon and it'll all be gone. Um, I will say you need to have this be one of your tools because you'll probably need to use it in addition to whatever other things need to be addressed. So anyway, that's that guy and like I say I've got many more but let's try to summarize all this and have some takeaways. Um, repentance of family spirit worship matters, even in Christian families. And in places like this, you can switch out things like Taoism and Buddhism for perhaps Amish practice, people who water witch or divine. Anyone know what that is? So it could be that. Um, it could be uh, you know the hex symbols that people put on their barns. If they come out of maybe a Catholic background, it could be religious talismans such as medals, prayer beads, scapulars, rosaries, anything like that. I'm not anti-Catholic, and if people want to use, you know, things to pray with, I I don't think that's either here nor there, but when it starts to become idolatrous, now we've crossed a line, and the problem is for most people, they are engaging in idolatry and they don't realize it. The Catholic Church actually forbids it to be idolatrous, and yet there are many bishops and some popes who <laughs> engage in idolatrous practice um, with the Mary and you know, the other saints. So I'm, I'm trying really hard not to bash Catholics. But I am saying if you're going to get people free of stuff, you need to ask these kinds of questions because oftentimes these will be factors in their getting free. Around here also, I don't know so much, I don't know how much of it's in this immediate area, but certainly in Ohio, there's a lot of Freemasonry. And Freemasonry can be a very big problem for people um, who are trying to get free of certain conditions. Um, I prayed for a classmate of Pat's and mine yesterday when we were in uh, Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. And she'd had this ongoing thing with migraine headaches, I mean for decades. And she'd had these pains in her shoulders and her neck. And she would be the most improbable Freemason descendant that you could ever imagine because she comes from Nigeria. And you don't generally think of Freemasonry in African nations. But in fact, it's there. And generally, it's the British or the French who brought it with them. Because it's rife in British and French society. And so when they were engaging in colonialism, they not only brought Christianity, they brought the Masonic Orders. And so those who kind of rise in their own societies, and she's of noble birth in Nigerian society, almost inevitably, it, you know part of the price of admission to be admitted to the aristocracy is you've got to become a Freemason. And so her grandfather had been a Freemason, and uh, so we went after that thing really seriously, and there was still some remaining issues. She needs another round of prayer. But we took care of everything kind of from the belly button up yesterday. And when I get back to her, we'll take care of everything from the belly button down. But the bottom line is she got healed because we dealt with the Freemasonry in her family. So don't overlook Freemasonry, even in somebody that you wouldn't commonly think of as being a likely candidate for needing Freemasonry deliverance. And by the way, you don't need the 96-page prayer to do that. I have a teaching, I think we put it out on the table tonight, called Ministering to Freemasonry. And you can take care of it in sort of five to ten minutes if you're doing it right using what I teach there. I mean, I could do that as a standalone teaching, but it wasn't on my, on my uh, teaching plan for this weekend. All right. Um, yeah, I heard that. <laughs> There could be other spirits involved with uh, people's um, sicknesses. Some of this you learn by doing. Some of this you learn through discernment. But I will say when you run into fibromyalgia, there's often evil spirits associating with that one. And most commonly that's going to be there because they, were, they either had a physical trauma or they were physically abused on purpose. Physical trauma more implies it was accidental. I, I saw somebody get healed in Australia in August this year when I was out there from a very severe case of fibromyalgia and it all went down in like 30 seconds. And that was because when she'd been out horse riding, they'd come up to a fence line, the horse had stopped, she'd come off the horse, hit the ground, she'd been wearing a riding helmet but had a head trauma and the fibromyalgia was rooted in that incident. There was no physical beating, but it was still a physical trauma. And so when we cleaned that out, she got healed. All right. Um, Confession of forgotten or deliberately hidden personal sin and inner healing can be keys to uh, other breakthroughs such as physical healing. Now again, forgotten or deliberately hidden, these are not the same thing. So just remember that part. Um, Next point, while Jesus paid for everything on the cross, freedom is not automatic. It's a strange thing, and we've all seen this. Some people get saved and they have whatever four pathologies. They're a drug addict, uh, they're a drunk, uh, they're addicted to porn, and I don't know, they're violent. And they get born again, and maybe two of those leave, and the other two don't. Why? I don't know. It just That's the way it goes. So I just live in the realm of practicality. If two were taken care of and they're no longer a problem, don't waste your time on them. But if the other two are still here, then we've got to figure out how we're going to get rid of those other two. And so, yeah, some people do have breakthrough events when they get born again. Praise God. But rarely does anybody get everything completely dealt with the moment they're born again. So, this thing of it was all done at the cross, just believe and that's the end of it, and Christians can't have demons again. I think this is just wishful thinking and fantasy theology. So, some spirits, usually higher level ones, respond best to being called out by name. Jesus ran into this with that spirit called Legion in Mark 5 in the graveyard the worship of other gods of any kind, <clears throat> including, by the way, imaginary ones that you might have been involved with, say, through Pokemon or the, the witchcraft that comes out of Harry Potter. This is really serious stuff. And in our world, we are seeding it into our children through everything Disney's putting out. And if it isn't Disney, it's Warner Brothers. So be on your guard about that. And by the way, check yourself. If you were down the road with Pokemon... You know, 20 years ago, if you're kind of in that age bracket, maybe in your 30s or 40s, you might well need deliverance from Pokemon. If you got, you know, really into the whole, what was that thing? New Moon, the vampire and werewolf movies? Twilight, Twilight, yeah. That might be a a problem for you. Um, You know, in New Zealand, they took a census just before COVID, and it wasn't a large number, but there was like 35 or 40,000 people who answered on their census form that their religion was Jedi Knight. Well, on the one hand, that sounds kind of humorous, but it, you know, the, the fundamental worldview of, of Star Wars... I mean, it, the first Star Wars came out when I was in high school. So it, it is literally f- colored not one, but two generations. And the worldview of Star Wars, and it is, you know, again, infected a whole generation is Taoism? That is the religion that undergirds Star Wars, and it is the power behind the Force. So, people who've gotten really into this, and I'm not saying they've watched it once and kind of enjoyed it, I mean, they were like, you know, they were gurus and aficionados, and they're like, I wish I could figure out how to make that thing come to me, you know, give me the lightsaber. You know, they, they're, they're trying to find that power. That's the kind of stuff I'm talking about. Um, Then they might need deliverance from things like Star Wars or the Force in this example. Um, When it comes to Freemasonry, watch out for Jabulon. He's the ruling spirit behind it. And he typically has two that go with him death and infirmity. So you need to drive all three out if you're going to see breakthrough. And with that, you might need to name the additional conditions like fibromyalgia or whatever their thing is that they're struggling with. Um, by the way, an indicator of Freemasonry is you'll often find that it affects the kind of roughly from the high chest up around the head and all through the trapezoids and the, the neck muscles. There's reasons why that would be too much to go into right now, but the bottom line is when you find people who have a lot of affliction in that area, you should start asking them about Freemasonry in their family. Um, Here's a few other common ones just because of the part of the country we're in. Um, For people of Nordic descent, or maybe even English, Scottish, and Irish, because the Nordic peoples invaded those those motherlands in the 8th century, which is a long time ago, but they brought with them the worship of Woden and Thor. So if people are stuck with food allergies, um, weird cancers, eye conditions, all of this can come from Woden or Thor. Woden is the father of Thor. Thor is the god of thunder. I grimaced when a friend of mine named his son Thor uh, not too long ago, and I was like, oh, boy. I know what we're going to be doing in a few years here. Um, I mean, why would you name your kid after a pagan god? I mean, I know they're trying to say you know he's strength and powerful and all that, but find another way to do it. Boanerges, how about that one? That works. You like that one, don't you? Yeah. You call him. You can call him Bo for short. Anyway, um, so Woden famously hung himself. So suicide on the tree Yggdrasil was its name. Uh, He was a one-eyed God and uh, so you'll find that a lot of times people have digestive problems. They need to get delivered of these Nordic gods. Uh, Similar to this but not the same, the Irish have a ruling spirit named Mahanan and among Germanic peoples, again I'm specifically picking stuff that I know because Ohio has a lot of people from these areas, at least originally when they were immigrants, Um, German ancestry, Yante, is a common spirit that you need to drive out. All right, well, I could keep going, but I'll stop here and simply say, in summary, uh, to those points that I was making, integrating deliverance into your common prayer ministry practice will give you much more breakthrough. Now, one thing you'll find, though, there'll be times when you say, all right, spirit of whatever it is, come out and not much happens. <clears throat> this is either because you're wrong, in which case admit it, or because that spirit is really there, but it's really dug in well. I mean, it's stuck in there. And you're going to have to figure out how to unstick it. And the, the tools that you'll tend to use will be these spiritual disciplines that deal with our spirit life, our spiritual life, inner healing, perhaps emotional healing, and... uh and there, and then you know, as you kind of chip away at whatever it is that cemented that thing in. You can usually bust that spirit loose and get it out. Deliverance isn't the only thing you need, but it's a very useful tool. And I hope I've uh, proven that to you with these stories tonight, as well as the scriptures we've looked at. All right. Any questions? open the floodgates oh wait a minute generally when you're driving yeah it's it's ideal if they're a Christian but if they're not we actually had the question come into our TA chat today from somebody who travels with us she's one of our um, team mates and often goes on international trips and she was going to pray for somebody who was an atheist uh, agnostic okay agnostic not atheist and uh and the woman that she was going to pray for had had three psychics tell her they couldn't pray for her because she was demon-possessed and she said, "I don't think I'm demon possessed, but I'm really worried about this." And so she wanted a Christian to help her out, and lo and behold, she goes to this woman who's part of our extended team. She's not here tonight, but anyway, so this woman was writing into our TA group saying, uh, "What do we do? I mean, how, how do I handle this?" And so she had a meeting with her, and I, I checked in with her later today, and it went it went well, but she didn't get delivered because I said, "Tell her that." She can be delivered if she has evil spirits, but if she is, she'll need to make a decision immediately to follow Jesus or seven worse will come in. So tell her up front, I can help you, but I'm there is this thing. If he does this, kind of like the woman in the wheelchair that I showed you from Taiwan, if he sets you free, will you renounce your Buddhism and your other religious practices? Yeah, I'll do it. Okay. This woman today, she said, I don't know about that. I want to think about it. Okay. Okay. So she went home with her demons, and she's going to get back to our friend. I'd rather they make a considered decision. Jesus said, count the cost, and that might well be the cost. But yeah, in general, we would rather do this on Christians than non-Christians. Okay. Because there are zero examples of self-deliverance in the Bible. I can't remember what that one is. Tell me. Yeah, it's easy to resist the enemy when he's outside of you, but when he's in you, you can't dislodge him. The scripture says that when a man is bound and you know, the strong man has control of him, someone has to come in and set him free. Jesus talks about this in one of his parables. But once you've been set free, the demons will come around. They'll check the house because they're trying to come back in. The windows are locked. The doors are locked. They're kind of rapping, trying to see... Can I get in? That's when you can say, get out of here. I've been set free. You have no place here. But if they own the property, if they're inside of it, and by the way, this doesn't mean your spirit. It means your emotions. It might mean your memories. These are two parts of the soul, and it might be your body. If they have control of some piece of that real estate, you usually will not be able to set yourself free of that. Every now and then it might happen, but God might sovereignly bless you. Who am I to gainsay what God does? But there are zero examples in the Bible of self-deliverance. And nowhere did Jesus say, go out and tell everybody how to deliver themselves of evil spirits. Instead, he said, every one of you go out and drive evil spirits out of people. So deliverance is principally a third-party activity. And we hate that in America because then we got to talk about all of our nasty, ugly stuff in our lives That is often embarrassing and so we live in shame and oh god it'll get into the into the freedom fellowship tattler and everybody will be talking about me at the next church social and and so we we intrinsically don't want to do it and then we find somebody teaching a webinar that says yeah we can teach you self-deliverance but let me just take this to an extreme remember the story i told about the guy who was levitating off the ground in mexico with the spirit of apollyon I 100,000% guarantee you he couldn't have delivered himself if he'd wanted to because that spirit was too powerful. It owned him. He needed somebody stronger than the strong man to overpower the strong man and strip him of his possessions and despoil him. And I'm not that powerful, but I know somebody who is, and he happens to live in me. And that's why we can deliver people. That's the only reason we can deliver people. So self-deliverance is something that has been peddled because it sells webinars, CDs, and books, and the American public has just gobbled it down because we are radically individualistic, and we don't believe in confessing our sins one to another in order that we may be healed.